0: For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark dodici you're listening to Daybreak. This week is going to be one of the most important of the year. What can we expect from what some are calling the election of a lifetime? Beyond the presidential contest, how might Senate and House races fall in key battleground states? And just how soon can we expect results with record numbers voting early or casting ballots by mail? Today, everything you need to know going into this week and this month like no other. It's Sunday, November 1st. The battle for the Senate this year will prove critical to how the government operates for the next two. There's a solid chance that either party could control the chamber come January. The Republicans currently hold a 53-47 advantage, and with Democrat Doug Jones expected to lose in Alabama, Democrats will need to flip at least four seats to control the Senate. Exactly four, the Senate will be split at 50-50. In that case, the vice president will break the tie. Here are some seats which experts expect to be critical in deciding control of the chamber. First up, in the top right corner of your US map, we recommend following along at home, we have Sarah Gideon, the Democrat versus Susan Collins, the incumbent Republican in Maine. Susan Collins is a Maine institution, having served her state for over two decades, but even she faces a difficult battle in this election's Democratic environment. Joe Biden is expected to win Maine by around 10 points, so Collins would need quite a few ticket splitters to break her way in order to stay in office. Sarah Gideon is the Speaker of the House in Maine and has consistently pulled 4-5 to five points ahead of Collins recently, a comfortable but not insurmountable lead. Before Trump's presidency, Collins was well known for her bipartisan reputation, which played a large role in her dominant 37-point victory in her last election in 2014. However, Collins has seen her popularity in Maine plummet thanks to her vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and her general unwillingness to criticize the Trump administration. Collins notably voted against the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, but it's unclear what effect, if any, this'll have on the race. Any long-standing incumbent like Collins has a decent chance at re-election, but the statewide environment currently favors Gideon. Driving down the Atlantic coast, we look at North Carolina, where Democrat Cal Cunningham is challenging Republican incumbent Tom Tillis. Although the polling in this race has been fairly steady, it has arguably been one of the most fascinating races of this cycle. In early October, news broke that Cunningham had engaged in extramarital sexting with a political consultant. Then news dropped that suggested Tillis had been abusive towards his ex-wife. Tillis then tested positive for COVID-19, contracted at the now infamous White House event preceding the announcement of President Trump's infection. Somehow, all of these scandals have had very little effect on the polling. Cunningham has run anywhere from even to well ahead of Biden's North Carolina support in polls. He's considered a slight favorite to defeat Tillis, but the race is likely to be quite close. Can't disregard the incumbent advantage. This race could decide control of the Senate, as Democrat strategists view it as their fourth best flipping opportunity, the seat which would get them to 50. Next up, find your way to the heartland of the nation. There, amid the corn, Democrat Teresa Greenfield is challenging incumbent Republican Joni Ernst in Iowa. This race has been an interesting one for a long time and is currently in a dead heat, in line with the state of Iowa's toss-up status in the presidential contest. Current polling averages show Greenfield with a slight lead, but several individual polls in recent days have shown Joni Ernst ahead by just a point or two. The race has received $170 million in outside money, second only to North Carolina Senate race and the presidential race in this election cycle. The contest picked up significant media attention in mid-October, when incumbent Senator Ernst was unable to answer a question about the break-even price of soybeans at a debate hosted by the Des Moines Register. In her 2014 victory, Ernst relied heavily on her farm upbringing as a part of her campaign strategy and she's attempting to run on a similar message this time around. The race is considered to be the second most likely pickup for Democrats, and with national attention focused on both the Senate and presidential race in Iowa, it's almost certain to be a very, very close contest, perhaps coming down to just a few votes in select counties. Northward we go to Montana, where Democratic Governor Steve Bullock is taking on Republican incumbent Steve Daines. While Trump is very likely to win Montana's three electoral votes, this race is proving to be significantly closer. Much to the chagrin of Montana Republicans, Bullock entered the race on the day of the filing deadline, after dropping out of the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. While Montana has consistently voted Republican at the presidential level, Democrat Senator John Tester has been in office since 2007, winning re-election three times. Bullock has been popular as governor since he took office in 2013, and it is hard to count him out, especially when Montana already has one Democrat in the Senate. If Trump wins Montana by fewer than 10 points, expect this to be a very close race. To close out the Senate, we move southeast to Georgia, the only state with two Senate elections this year. One race sees documentary filmmaker John Ossoff take on the Republican incumbent David Perdue. The other is a special election jungle primary with three main competitors, Republican incumbent Kelly Loeffler, Republican Doug Collins, and Democrat Raphael Warnock. In Georgia, if a Senate candidate doesn't win more than 50% of the vote, the race will head to a January runoff. This isn't terribly likely in the first race, with only two main candidates. You'd need a super close result. In the special election, though, with multiple candidates from both of the major parties on the ballot, all bets are off. Republicans are currently slight favorites in both races, but don't be surprised if the peach state goes purple or even blue this year. Democrats have performed better than expected in recent statewide elections, including Stacey Abrams narrowly losing to Brian Kemp in the governor's race in 2018. Recent presidential polls in the state have gone either way, with only a few points separating the candidates. The Ossoff-Purdue race has been similarly close, with the Democrat leading fairly consistently, but by small margins each time. And the special election, well, who knows? Polls have shown Warnock close to the magical majority needed to win outright, with Loeffler and Collins splitting the conservative vote. But if it goes to a runoff between the top two candidates, it's hard to know exactly how that cookie would crumble. Moving away from the Senate back up the East Coast to the emotional home state of Princetonians worldwide, let's look at the house race in New Jersey's second congressional district, basically the southernmost quarter of the state, where Republican incumbent Jeff Van Drew is facing strong opposition from Democrat Amy Kennedy. It's the only toss up house race in the state, and it's only getting closer. Van Drew drew national attention in late 2019, when, after saying he opposed impeachment, eventually met with President Trump and officially changed his party affiliation to Republican. The president then endorsed him. Amy Kennedy is a former teacher who married into the Kennedy family. She's running with a passion for green energy, healthcare, and education. The margin is razor-thin, giving Van Drew the slightest of leads. But the popular vote margin is only separated by 0.2%, so this race really could go either way. So... Your races to watch, Maine, North Carolina, Iowa, Montana, and both Georgia contests in the Senate and New Jersey's southernmost district in the House of Representatives. But when will we know who won? Well, when most Americans picture election night, they think of waiting up at night as vote totals are released until a winner is declared. Even in normal years, that's not an entirely accurate picture. States generally take weeks to officially certify their results, but it is true that most news networks will make projections on election night, and these projections are typically very accurate. However, since so many voters have already cast their ballots this year either in person or by mail, that election night ritual, like so many things this year, is going to play out differently. For example, in some states, including the crucial Rust Belt battlegrounds of Michigan and Pennsylvania, election officials will count in-person votes and mail-in ballots separately. The disparity between party affiliations of voters who cast mail-in ballots and in-person votes may mean that Republicans will have an advantage on election night in those key states, but may be defeated once the largely Democratic mail-in votes are counted in the ensuing days. It's probably safe to expect lawsuits over vote counting in close races that may last for weeks after November 3rd. There's been record-breaking turnout in the early vote this year both in-person and via mail, and polls have shown that those who vote early are more often those voting blue. In some states, including toss-ups Florida, North Carolina, and Iowa, mail-in ballots can begin to be counted before election day. This means that when we start hearing early returns, it may look as though Democrats have landslide leads in those battleground states. But don't be fooled by these first reports. They are battleground states for a reason. When in-person votes start being tallied up, the races will likely tighten, as we know many Republicans are planning to vote in-person on Tuesday. Especially in close races, it's important that the news media and politicians remain vigilant in expressing that the vote count is working differently this year. We at Daybreak will certainly choose our words cautiously for Wednesday's coverage. If you see a politician declare victory on election night, pay attention to network projections and the percentage of precincts reporting before believing them. Declaring victory can be used as a tactic in anticipation of possible recounts. It gives the candidate claiming the win a narrative of legitimacy to project to the press which has the potential to influence public opinion. If you take one thing from today's election coverage, please let it be patience. In other headlines, countries across Europe are reeling from a brutal second wave of the coronavirus this week, with Italy, France, and the UK all seeing mandatory lockdowns initiated within the last few days. At the same time, for the past week, Poland has seen massive protests against an abortion ban handed down from the nation's highest court. Friday's crowds, ignoring threats of police action and, indeed, the ever-looming pandemic, represented the largest demonstration in Poland since the fall of communism. The United States continues to shatter daily case records, reporting 99,000 new cases Friday, the most on any day in any country during the outbreak. And finally, the Texas Republican Party announced that it has filed a lawsuit to have approximately 100,000 ballots that were cast by curbside voters in Harris County, where Houston is located, thrown out. Earlier this month, the Texas Supreme Court rejected the GOP's petition to outlaw the practice. A Trump appointee will decide whether votes should be thrown out in an emergency hearing Monday morning. That's all for Daybreak today. This week, we're returning to our roots. Daybreak is back to a full daily publication Monday through Friday. We're also relaunching our Sunday episodes to give an overview of the week's events, both in Princeton News and around the world. So keep an eye out for new episodes six days a week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on DailyPrincetonian.com. Today's episode is written by Jack Anderson, Wilson Kahn, and Hope Perry under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horn, class of 22. For the Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Dorici. Have a wonderful week.